We're going to jump into 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here we are in this series, Equipped, looking to see what God has given us to prepare us to go out into all the world. He's given us a job. He gave the disciples a job, he gave us a job, he gives everybody a job, and then he says, I've equipped you with everything that you need in order to do said task. It's kind of nice, right? Having the proper tool for the proper job, okay? You know, if you've ever been in a situation, maybe you've been fixing something at your house, and there's a nail that needs to be driven. Doesn't matter what's near you, it becomes a hammer, right? Okay? It may not function properly, but it might get the nail into the wood. I mean, that's really what you're trying to do. So, to a carpenter, everything's a hammer. Well, not even a carpenter. To, to me, everything's a hammer. I've used wrenches. I've used children's toys. I tried the back of a shoe once. That didn't work very well, but I tried it. I mean, I've used everything. I even tried to man up and use my hand once, and only once, okay? I've seen it on TV where the guy held the nail and he smashed it into the board. He must be better than me because it did not work and it hurt a lot. So, you know, you learn. So, what has God given us? Well, we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6, looking at the armor of God. He says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So, Paul is sitting there addressing the church in Ephesus, telling them, you need to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might because we are in a battle fair enough we're not in a battle with one another we're not in a battle it's not us versus them it's not good versus bad as far as people are concerned it is a spiritual battle and the wiles of the enemy the methods in which he attacks us and they attacks the church and he attacks the body of christ are usually through the mind he says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood but we're against these principalities powers the rulers of the darkness of this age and a spiritual host of wickedness now as we got into this a little bit deeper we dug into the concept that these these things are there are beings that are over areas that kind of pull these strings if you will the marionette the good and the bad the evil and the and the and the not evil i mean all of this stuff is going on here and we're looking at it and we're like okay we need to address the spiritual in other words we don't just chase symptoms the symptoms lead us to what is the cause so what the cause is is we have a spiritual problem and that is symptomatic in our flesh so we have to deal with that. We begin to look at this. So, but how do we handle this? In other words, as we're going into all the world, you're going into territories that are governed not by God, but by other beings, evil, nefarious beings that are not out looking for your good. You go to other countries, you will see them worshiping these different deities. Some of them are afraid to convert. Why? Because that deity will kill them. That's what they'll tell you, depending on where you go in the world. I mean, this is a messed up thing, and we tend to just kind of, when I say spiritualize it, we tend to not take this seriously enough. We tend to look, it's like, well, you know, they're just worshiping this thing, you know, it's not really a thing. It's really a thing. The idol is the representation of the thing, okay? Symptom, cause. You guys following me? 
So with that in mind, what do we do? We put on the armor. It says take it on. It's the word indio in Greek. Put it on like a new suit. Put it on on whole, its entirety. When we look at this armor, it was intended to be an entire unit, not piece by piece, but each piece locked into one another, starting with the belt. The belt of truth locked in every other piece of armor. If you don't have truth on your side, what does that mean? You're wrong, right? You can have an opinion. You can have whatever you want. You don't get your own facts. I know that's scary to hear in America today. That doesn't go over well. But that's the truth. You can have an opinion on a subject. You can have an opinion on anything. Our opinion should be grounded in the Word of God. That is where the truth lies. And from there, each part of this was individually crafted to the individual. These were not mass-produced. They were individually put together, meant to protect uh, both from an offensive and a defensive standpoint in every facet and every area that they went. There was something about this armor that gave them a unique sense of, of confidence it's kind of like football players today. They talk about the injuries that they're having and stuff has a lot to do with the pads that they wear because it protects them so well. It forces them to do things that they didn't do back in Stan's day when he was playing football, you know, before they wore helmets. Remember that, Stan? They had a rock. They'd step back and they'd throw the rock. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh, I should have picked somebody else. Anyway, moving right along. But the bottom line is, is that they're talking about this stuff. Well, imagine, if you will, the confidence that you have. So we've got protesting going on, and they're throwing rocks and throwing bricks and all of that. And if you're standing out there as an individual, you're concerned. If you're standing out there geared up, you're concerned, but a little less concerned, right? If you drive in there in a tank, you ain't concerned at all. Yeah, you go ahead and throw your rock. I mean, that's what I'm saying is like there was something about this that gave them a sense of confidence that they were not worried, they were not fearful, they were not concerned. And all of what this is going on is Paul is telling us the exact same thing. Who is our trust in? Be strong in the Lord. That's the point. The last aspect of this was the praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. As we dug into this, we began to look at the concept of praying in tongues. Does that necessarily mean praying in tongues? And as we dug through, you can see that they are correlating to, together. One another speaking uh, uh, with this. And so when we look at this idea, we began to say, okay, well, if that's the case, because these were the lances that they would carry, the spears that they would have, there was different kinds of prayer and whatnot, but one of these is in the, in the Spirit. So praying in tongues, we began to break this down and say, okay, if that's the case, and it is a biblical concept that is misconstrued, some abuse it and some ignore it, how about we just land in the middle and do what Scripture says about it, but what is it and what is the point of it? So then we turn to Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. He says, then he said to them, these are the words of which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Remember, that's the three concept or the three breaking outs of the Jewish scripture. That was the entirety of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. So then he said, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. 
to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, we began to look at this concept. What did Jesus tell them? Before you go, I need you to hang out in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Feast of Pentecost was coming up. Every able-bodied male Jew was supposed to be in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. He said the promise of the Father is coming. It is the Holy Spirit. You will be endued with what? He doesn't say the Holy Spirit. He said you'll be endued with power from on high. So to tie these things up, then we must go back and look at Acts chapter 2. But we're not going there yet, so don't turn there. I saw some of you. Okay? Don't get in front of me. So when we look at what was happening in Acts chapter 2, we see it is the promise of the Father, the enduing with power from on high. Now we talked about the four things that were taking place in that moment in Acts chapter 2. You have the new covenant taking place. You certainly have the new high priest doing his priestly work, that is Jesus. You have the new temple, that is you and I, the temple not made with hands. And of course the reclaiming of the world as one, the confusion with tongues, Confusing the world, going back to the Tower of Babel, bringing the world back together as one people group. Instead of having it isolated in order to be right with Yahweh before, what did you have to do? Become a Jew. That is no longer the case. So, the question comes down to is what took place in Acts chapter 2? We see the moment where the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at this in a little bit, the Holy Spirit came upon them. This is the moment that Jesus talked about, you'll be a dude with power from on high. And the result of that is they spoke in tongues. Was that the moment that they received the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is no, it can't be because of John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, peace be with you. When he, had, uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad that when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what is happening there? He said, receive the Holy Spirit. Did they receive the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I mean, according to John, they did, right? So either John is wrong, and they had to wait till Acts 2 to get it, and that's the moment, or we're not talking about the same thing. Because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit within us that we see in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, is not the same thing as being endued with power from on high. That's the key that I want you guys to get. A lot of people have made the mistake to assume that once you receive this new life, this new salvation, this new spirit within you, that you've received all the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. And the answer to that is, yes, there are not layers of the Holy Spirit, but you are now endued with power from on high. You see, we use the wrong language. We look at things incorrectly so we went to the gospels to look at exactly what was said that jesus was going to do the four gospels have four things in common all of them talk about his death all of them talk about his burial and all of them talk about his resurrection the fourth one is this what we call the baptism in the holy spirit there's nothing else in there that all four gospels talk about like these four things so here we go matthew chapter 3 verse 7 but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is John the Baptist. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fan in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's number one. So who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Jesus did. Who baptized unto repentance? John did. There's two different things going on. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 6. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt about his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So now we're seeing this Holy Spirit being the one that is being baptized upon. And we look at the words of Jesus. What do he say? You'll be endued with power. Now we are making the association between those two examples. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation, all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan in his hand, he will, he, ah, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Do you guys pick up on the pattern? That is how God works. He works in these patterns. We see that John is baptizing unto repentance, associating himself with the one to come after him, one who is mightier than him, but that one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 1. The next day when John saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who said, uh, of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, On whom... Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see, what I'm trying to get you to see is that the whole point of what's happening here is that John was baptizing and making an association with the teaching of John. What was the teaching of John? The one coming after me is the one who will bring repentance to Israel. He's, things are changing. This is the new covenant concept. It's changing. It's beginning to look different. But when he comes, I don't know him, and I'm not worthy to loose the straps on his sandals. Remember, during that time, the servant, that is one of the jobs that they would do. They would loose their sandals and carry them. He said, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's who this man is. He said, but when he gets here, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So we have to look at our terms. Number one, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. That is the work. Because we get hung up in the word baptize. We hear baptize, what do we think? You were sprinkled, you were dumped. One of the two. But it simply means to immerse. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That the Spirit baptizes into Christ. In other words, we are born again. From that moment on, we do something where we become baptized with water. In other words, who does that? A disciple does that. Any individual who is a follower of Christ can baptize somebody in water. And what are you doing? Under a Jewish context, what they were doing is they are associating themselves with the teaching of the rabbi who was teaching, the one who was leading them. They're following him. When we are baptized in water, what are we doing? We are aligning ourselves with Christ. It does not make us whole. It is a sign to the world. When they would mikvah, it would be a, a, a ritual cleansing. But we have been cleansed. We are baptized. We go into the water as Christ went into the grave and we come out in new life. It does not save us. But this is done by an individual. Which brings us to the last part. What did John say? He who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
It's Jesus who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Jesus the one that told them to wait. We watched that event take place in Acts chapter 2. So when the Holy Spirit came upon them, what happened? They were endued with power from on high. As a result of that, they began to speak in tongues. Let's not get them out of order. Keep the priority where it should be. All of this is important. But there was a point to all of this. So we see these three things laid out here very clearly. I showed you last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the ideas of types and shadows. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, what is he talking about? He uses that word baptize. So obviously it doesn't mean what we think, that he would dunk them. Because we know what this is referencing. This is referencing the Exodus event. As they were leaving, they went through the sea. He did not stop and splash them into the sidewalls. Okay? That's not what took place. They were baptized into Moses, a deliverer, a type of Christ. The one who instituted the Passover. The Passover lamb being sacrificed. They were sanctified at that moment and set apart. They were baptized in the cloud. What is that? The cloud is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So we have this idea of these three baptisms laid out here in 1 Corinthians 10 going back to the types and shadows of the Old Testament. So this is not a new concept. The problem is, is, and this is a big problem in the church today with a lot of things, but many of us have right beliefs but have no idea where those beliefs came from. Because we've never taken the time to study it out, to look it up. We've just simply taken it because somebody who seems smarter than you maybe said it. Fortunately for you, you don't have to worry about that here. Okay? I'll make it blatantly clear that I am not smarter than most of you. Some of you. I'm waving at the back. So, the thing is, guys, is these concepts are all there, but what do we do with them? Well, then it goes on, it says, all ate the same spiritual food, which was what? Manna. All drank the same spiritual drink, which was what? The water that came from the rock. For they drank that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. What's he talking about? That rock that was struck and then supposed to be spoken to, but instead was struck twice. Both produce water because God is faithful to his people. But there was a type that was being formed there. So, and apparently the rock followed him around. But look at what verse 6 says. All these things became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down and ate and drank and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon the ends of the ages who have come so in this context what is he saying all the events that took place to them were written down for our examples so that we can learn from them and one of the concepts that we learn is this thing right here so keep the first things first jesus told them that i want you to wait in jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high why because they need this to go into the world this is not about them It's always about Jesus. It is about carrying his message, carrying his word. There's a reason they needed that power. For some reason today, we think we can get by without it. That's not the case. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, we're going to read that here shortly, they were endued with power, and as a result of that, they began to speak in tongues. So let's go there. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Now, we are going to go through the book of Acts today, all of it. We're going to start reading in chapter 1, and we're going to read it all the way to the end. 
Just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. But I'm a very visual learner, okay, and not a very good writer, all right? But when I look at something and I begin to break it down, I like to see it laid out. So there are five places in the book of Acts that we see this event take place where the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10 and 11, with 11 being a retelling, and then of course chapter 19. So we see the Holy Spirit come upon them. Then we want to look at how did the Holy Spirit come upon them. Was it through the laying on of hands or did it happen corporately? They were just standing there and he fell. Because what are we looking for? We're looking for patterns. Then, since we see that, was there a sign that was given to let the world know that the Holy Spirit indeed had come upon them? You guys following me? This is what we're looking for. We want to know exactly what the pattern states. Remember, to a Greek mindset, whenever we look at prophecy, we look at a, a prophecy given and a fulfillment. But to a Jewish mindset, it is always about patterns. It's this already but not yet concept. Something can be fulfilled, but it can be fulfilled again later. And there's these patterns about the character of God. As I've told you, that the idea that God works in mysterious ways is the biggest load of doo-doo in the history of the church. Because he's not mysterious, he works in predictable patterns. If that were not so, we could not rely on any promise that God has given. Because we'd always be up in the air, I don't know what he will do. There's never a question of that, not knowing, outside of we don't know his character, and we don't know what he said. So, let's jump into this, Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, as I said... Feast of Pentecost. It's the day. What do they do? They go to the temple. They make the sacrifices. They bring the gifts. The high priest has a role in all of this. They were in one accord in one place. Where does it say that one place was? It doesn't. Did not give us the address. So is it the upper room of some dude's house? I don't think so. They're likely at the temple. They're in one of the rooms of the temple. Anyway, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fires, one sat upon each of them. Now, what are we talking about? This new temple. Remember how the temple was christened? Fire came down from heaven. The priest could not even enter in. We have a new temple. Same thing, same concept. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, let's stop. We look at this. They were standing there. It's the Feast of Pentecost. What happened? They were standing there. Did they know what was going to happen? No. Did they know what day it was going to happen on? Not necessarily. Not according to Scripture. We don't know. I mean, did they have an, an inkling it might be that day? Maybe. I have no idea. So we're not going to assume they, they did. Did anybody lay hands on them for the Holy Spirit to come upon them? No. No. So it happened corporately, right? So the first example we have is a corporate Holy Spirit falling upon them. How do we know that that took place? Well, the first sign given, and let's just read it again. Let me go back there. Uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we see very clearly that the sign given, or whatever, is tongues. Now, does this tell us that that was a sign at this point? No, it does not. That's not what, what uh, Luke is writing here. But later on, we see that as an uh, earmark given. Okay, so corporately he fell, and tongues were given. Let's continue on. 
And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? So we have all these people from all over the, uh, the known world or the world of that area coming back to Jerusalem. They were confused because what? They hear their own language being spoken. So we will get into the idea later, well, what is this tongues? Is it, a, is it In this case, is it to get people's attention? And the answer to that is yes. Is there a private prayer language that is also given? The answer to that is yes. We'll talk about that another time. But bottom line here is that we just have to see what is happening here. So with that, we go on. So they were all amazed and perplexed, verse 12, saying to one another, what could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Now remember who this is. This is the guy that not that long ago couldn't stand up for Jesus at the cross. He was concerned for his life. He was concerned for his well-being. Who did he stand up with? The other 11. Who's the spokesman here? It is Peter. Verse 15, these are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. If you get a chance to go back and read all of Joel, I would strongly encourage you to do it. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. All right. So he is now saying that this event that has just taken place is a marker that they are in the last days. Fair enough? That's what it says. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. On my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now understand this, that the Jews believe that when the time of Messiah came and he established his kingdom, it would be a time of prophecy. It would be a time in which now everybody would be filled with the Holy Spirit and be able to prophesy. Who prophesied before? Prophets. You had to be called. Okay? So that is what is all this going on here. We see it earmarked in the last days. And so now we know where we are in this source of time. And he says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath. So we are still in the last days, right? How do you get out of the last days? Eventually there's a last day. It ends, right? So if the last day started two years, 2,000 years ago, congratulations, we're still there. All right, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to God, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and have put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he sat at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy and in your presence. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. Why is uh, Peter going through all of this? Why is he quoting David? Because he is dealing and addressing with issues and ideas that the Jews believe. Because they believe that David was talking about himself. Jesus addressed this also earlier on. 
Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath of him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Stop. So you see why he's addressing this. Because obviously they believe that David was the one that they were, he was referencing when he said that, when he wrote that down. But David is both dead and buried, and we know where his grave is. Now, just like the church does today, back then is when they held a belief and something happened that seemed to be contrary to that belief, they would just kind of change the way they thought a little bit and make excuses to why it didn't work the way they, they thought. In other words, they believe that this was reference to David, this whole thing, but he's dead. Oh, he must be resurrecting uh, after Messiah comes. Because remember, they're thinking Messiah is a political figure. You guys see that? We do the same thing today. Well, man, I prayed for somebody and God didn't heal him. must not have been his will. Right? Or God doesn't heal today. You shouldn't waste your time with that. We do the same thing. We create these theological ideas that are a result of something that happened. We're like, well, that must be what that means. Not necessarily. So, last part of this, being exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That was what he said was coming. We saw that in Luke 10 and Luke 11, that the promise of the Father, he's sending a company, sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, he poured out this, which you now see and you now hear. So what is the promise of the Father? The empowering, obviously, of the Holy Spirit. That was the promise, right? I mean, he is making that tie in there. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens and says to himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, so because of this, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord will call. Now, look at what he says. We repent first. We give. What happens when we repent? We give our lives to Christ. Then you will be baptized associating yourself with this Jesus. You're now a follower of the way. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? What they saw and what they heard. What did they see? What did they hear? Well, we know what they heard. They heard a sound like a rushing wind, so their hair wasn't blowing everywhere. They saw tongues of fire. And then um, they heard each of their uh, speaking in their own language. That's the tongue aspect. Now, next week we'll look at the net result of all of this. But for now, we're going to move on. So that's Acts chapter 2. So what do we see? The first thing we see is that corporately the Holy Spirit came upon them. Nobody prayed for them. We don't know what they were expecting. They just knew that this was going to happen. Did they know what it would look like? And then one of the things that they see is they tongue. That is one of the things that they heard was the speaking in tongues. Now let's go over to Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. 
Now Saul was consenting to his death. Now he's referencing Stephen, so you need to go back and, and do a little research. Steve gave, Stephen gave one of the greatest sermons ever and really laid it out there, so much so that he got a standing ovation, then he threw rocks. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So all the believers left, except for the twelve. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, this is a big deal, because to a Jew, it was dishonoring to not bury the dead. And they put their lives on the line to do this. I mean, this, this was a big deal. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Again, a big deal. Anybody who was around, he was after them. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. You know what it doesn't say? They went into hiding. They left Jerusalem. It was hot. We need to get out of here. We may not live to see another day. But when they left, what did they do? They preached the word everywhere. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, what do you know about Samaritans? Jews don't like them. They were considered half-Jews. They would be circumcised, but they were not looked upon favorably. They were a second-class citizen, considered filthy, and in fact, the Jews had nothing to do with them. They would avoid them. That's why when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, it was a, it was a big deal. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Now, this is interesting because he's preaching Preaching's going on everywhere. He's preaching in Samaria, and they are heeding all these words because they are hearing and seeing the miracles. Now, what's fascinating here is that some will say that this moment where the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and giving them gifts and power was isolated to the apostles because they were spreading the word. But here is Philip, who's a nothing as far as that's concerned, doing the exact same thing. We can also assume that there were many others doing the exact same thing. So they hear and see the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many were paralyzed and lame, were healed, and there was great joy in that city, as one can expect. Remember, they didn't have hospitals like we had. Okay? They had an issue. This was their only hope. Verse 9, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Why? Because only a man of God could do these miracles. And Simon was doing something. He was getting their attention. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So now they have associated themselves with the teaching of Philip, which is what? That the kingdom of God is here. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. There's a lot of stuff that's happening here. Verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So what do we see happening? How did they receive the Holy Spirit here in chapter 8? Well, it was the laying on of hands, right? 
Now, here's the question. If in the moment that we are born again, we receive all of the Holy Spirit that we're supposed to, why did they send Peter and John? Because Philip preached to them. It's almost like this was a different event. You guys see that? In other words, it doesn't have to be like in a specific order type of thing. But the idea that when we receive the Holy Spirit inside of us is the same thing as what just took place here doesn't make sense in light of this scripture. Because if that's the case, Peter and John could go and investigate. But they have the Holy Spirit. They're already believers. They're already following this Jesus. So it has to be something different. So they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now you notice he didn't say to do the miracles. Old habits die hard. Peter said, you, your money perished with you because uh, you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. What's the gift of God? The Holy Spirit coming upon them. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages uh, of the Samaritans. Again, where are we? We're in Samaria. So Simon screws up. Was he born again? I think so, absolutely. That's, that's the way it reads. But he just he wants to be able to do this, and he thinks he can buy it, which was a common thing. What was he into before? Sorcery. You know what you could buy? Spells. They would make them, they would sell them. That's what he knows. What do we call this? Sanctification. His spirit may be right, but his head ain't there yet. So, we see through the laying on of the apostles' hand that the Holy Spirit came upon them. What was the sign that they knew this? It doesn't say. Can we assume they spoke in tongues? Not yet. Did it tell us that they did? No, it doesn't. So we're we going to force that in there? No, and I'll show you why we don't have to. Let's go to Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of the Damascus, so that if he, may be, uh, if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, they, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, again, the way. That is a reference to what we call Christianity. Christian, the word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. It was, a way for, it was a new sect of Judaism. They had to call them something. They were followers of the Christ, so they're Christian. Okay? But the way is how they were associated. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you perse you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he is trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And then men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was, uh, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Three-day fast was very common. So... Saul, we call him Paul, has an awakening moment. Do you think at this moment he might have changed his mind on who this Christ fella is? I would say so. I'd say it's a pretty safe bet. It doesn't take that much to convince me. 
Verse 10. Now there were a certain disciple named at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Now, that's very specific. The street and the house. It's almost like an address. That helps out tremendously, right? He knows where to go. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So, Paul has had this vision of Ananias coming and healing him. Okay? Do we know who Ananias is? No. We don't know anything about him. Verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Can you blame Ananias for maybe not wanting to go? Okay? Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and he was baptized. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, we see here, that Ananias did what? He laid his hands on him, the scales fell off, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we see the laying on of hands. Okay? So we've got two different ways going. We've got two different things happening. Now, does it say that he spoke in tongues? It does not. So we can't assume that, can we? Well, actually, we can. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 18... He says, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. So, we know that he did. We also know that he was endued with power from on high. He wasn't some random guy just walking around. This is a guy that wrote most of the New Testament. right? There's a lot of documentation showing what he says and does after this moment. Fair enough? So, we know for a fact that he did speak in tongues. And we can backtrack and begin to say, okay, well... The other guys, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with tongues. Can we assume that the same thing happens here? We can begin to make that assumption. And now that we've got two out of the three, we can kind of say, well, maybe he just didn't write it down. Because we know Paul did, and Luke didn't write it down. Maybe it's the same thing here. Maybe that wasn't the point. That wasn't the focus. Remember, these are individuals writing this stuff. Now, let's go to one we've read before, Acts chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion. What was called of the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he, uh, he was afraid. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers and alms have come up as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa to send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. Again, he's giving them directions. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him and departed, Cornelius called 
two of his ser- household servants, a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to him, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, they, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter was up on the housetop to pray. About six hours, and he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while he, they made ready, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven open up, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to earth and it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth wild beasts creeping things and birds of the air and a voice came to him rise peter kill and eat peter said not so lord i have never eaten anything common or unclean and a voice spoke to him again saying the second time what god has cleansed you must not call common this was done three times the object was taken up now while peter wondered within himself what the vision uh meant behold the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Okay? So, again, does the Spirit of God speak to Peter here? Yeah. So doubt nothing. Go with them. They're from me. Peter went down to the men and said to him, uh, sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nations of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went with them, and some brethren of Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. He got a crowd. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And they said to him, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go with one from another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So we get an explanation of the vision. It has nothing to do with food. But what are we, what are we referencing back here? Deuteronomy 32. These are not unclean people. There is no longer a separation of nations. It is now one people group can come to God. You don't have to be a Jew. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked him, for what reason have you sent me? And Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all here before God to hear what God has commanded you. Right? No pressure. We're all here. Preach something. Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, after he arose from the dead and he commanded to us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in his name will receive remission of sins what did he just preach he preached the gospel what did he just say whoever believes in him will receive so what happens verse 44 While Peter was still speaking, 
the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many were with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And we're going to stop for a second. While he was speaking, what is the caveat to receiving, being baptized, as I said before, by the Holy Spirit into Christ? Believing in him. See, we make a big deal out of Romans 10, 9, and 10. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he will, you will be saved. We make that a formula. But we've got a problem. Because they didn't say nothing. And the Holy Spirit fell upon them. So perhaps our formula isn't quite right. You see, it's belief in your heart. It's the changing of the mind. It's what the word repent means. So they are shocked. Why are they shocked? Because the gift, what we talked about, of the Holy Spirit, not receiving in here, but upon here, had been poured out on these formerly unclean pagans. How did they know? They heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So what happened here? We're going to go read it again. Was it the laying on the hands? No. Corporately. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them? They heard them speaking in tongues. Are we kind of seeing a pattern begin to develop? It appears that there's two different ways that this can happen, but the net result's always the same. The sign is there. Let's go on. Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who would receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? Okay, now let's stop. Just as they have. So Acts chapter 2 is where they received the Holy Spirit. These guys received it just as they have. It's the same thing. So this must be what Jesus was referencing when he said the gift of the Holy Spirit will be poured upon you. Has to be. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. In other words, they're now baptizing Gentiles. This was a no-no. Who did that? The priesthood did that before. You came in, you had to go and mikvah and be cleansed and baptize yourself, associating yourself with Judaism. Now they're like, can we stop this? I mean, this is, he was a little confused. Let's go to chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay? When it says contended with them, that sounds really nice, but they jumped all over him. How dare you? In my best Greta voice. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance. I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals on the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. That very moment, three months stood before me, the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Which is what he did. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So he's making association back to Acts chapter 2. Just like it happened to them 
or to us, it happened to them. Then I remember the word of the Lord. John indeed baptized with water. You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they believed on Jesus Christ, the gift came upon them. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So it's the same thing. We're seeing the same event take place time and time again. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? It is not the indwelling. It is this pouring out of the Spirit upon you that you are endued with power from on high. Let's go to one more. And I promise I'm done. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Now, We'll come back to that. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, which is a lot of our churches today. And he said to them, And then what then were you baptized? He said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. The men were all about 12 in all. Now let's break this down. The question that came, he finds disciples. What does that mean? Every time Luke uses the word disciples. It is a reference to somebody who is follower, a follower of the way. Otherwise, he specifies whose disciples they are. He says John's disciples as an example. So when we just see this blankly, every other time it is a reference to disciples of Jesus. He said, Paul asked him, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, of course you did. If you're a believer in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit, Correct. And they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is one. And he said, then what were you baptized? Into John's baptism. What was John's baptism? Into a follower of the way, the one coming after I, who is mightier than I. And he says, John indeed baptized a baptism of repentance, that you should believe on him who would come after him, and that is Jesus. So they baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus because they had not been baptized yet. And what happens? As he laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So how did they get it? The laying on of hands. How did Paul know? They spoke in tongues. Now, I am no rocket scientist. That's for sure. I can probably change my oil and I can pump my own gas, and that's about the extent of it. But... I see there are two ways that this seems to have happened throughout the book of Acts. This is how this is talked about every time. The net result is the same in four of the five cases that we can confirm. It seems to me that there's a pattern. It's the believing on Him. That's when we're baptized into Christ. We are then, and I say then as in there's no particular order, a disciple, the one preaching, whomever, baptizes in water, associating as a sign to the world that we are a follower of the way. And then anybody who asks the Father, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them. Now, as I said, tongues isn't the point. The point is that you're endued with power from on high. That's the point. 
And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Because once you get this, this is great, what are you going to do with it? This is a sign. This is a byproduct. This was the point. This is what we've lost. We've got a lot of people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't have people walking around with the authority of Jesus. We don't have people walking in, being His hands and feet, who are healing all who are oppressed of the devil. We don't have that like they had that. And part of that is, is because I'm not 100% sure we believe it all. We're waiting for somebody else to step up. But is this starting to make sense? It's brick by brick that we're laying, guys. You see, I, I've never been uh, accused of being short-winded in any way. But when I look at something, A, I'm visual, but B, I want to understand how it works. Remember the $800 VCR I told you about that my parents bought? And I want to know how that works, so I took it apart. I did not get it back together. It was not a good day in the Schimmel household, all right? But I want to understand this, and I want to see what Scripture says, not what I previously thought, but what does Scripture actually say? And what it seems to say to me is that he didn't want his disciples going out there until they were endued with power. And then as they were endued with power, suddenly they're getting the attention of the world. There's a boldness there with Peter that was never there before. And there's miracles that are taking place that they had never done before. And they're also speaking in tongues every single time. There's something to this. So we'll dig into that deeper next week.